I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. We've got another edition of Parallax Views dealing with Israel-Palestine and the bombing of Gaza in retaliation for the October 7th attack by Hamas in Israel. Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Olam blog, which deals with breaking news about the Israeli national security state returns for an exclusive report on an Israeli security source that has told him there is a directive, an order by the Israeli security cabinet to kill not only Hamas leaders, but also their families. We'll be talking about that, as well as the geostrategic implications of what we see unfolding in the Middle East. What does this mean for Iran, China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, and others? All that and more in the conversation to follow with Richard Silverstein of Tikkun Olam. So with that being said, let's get right to it. Welcome back to Parallax Views. I guess I wish I was speaking with under better circumstances, given the situation we see right now uh, in the Middle East uh, and with the bombing of Gaza. But Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Ulam blog, which offers breaking news on the Israeli national security state. Uh, How are you doing, uh, Richard? Well, under the circumstances, <laughs> hanging in there. Um, I always like to say it's unfortunate that I have so much to write about. <clears throat> yeah. So you have a, a breaking news story. This <clears throat> is an exclusive for Parallax News. We're the first to cover it. Uh, but uh, you have a breaking story. Israeli security cabinet orders murders of senior Hamas leaders and families. Can you talk a little bit about this story? And I know you can't reveal your source on it, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how this story came, uh, it, it fell into your lap, I guess, in a lot of ways. Well, <clears throat> so the uh, the gist of this is that uh, the Israeli security cabinet, which is basically a subgroup of the larger cabinet, and the, they are ministers who deal with um, security issues, both internal and external. And so the security cabinet meets and is empowered to make decisions about Israeli military um, strategy and orders to the military about what they should be doing. So they tasked the Shin Bet and the IDF with um, murdering all 
of the senior leadership of Hamas. That's about 10 people. Uh, I, I won't get into all the names because your listeners may not be familiar, but it's every leader from the top, you know, down to uh, the middle. So this uh, would ranking. include people like Mohammed Daif. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Daif, Yahya Sinwar, who is the, um, um, the, the leader of, of uh, Hamas in Gaza, uh, Khaled Mashal, who the Israelis did try to assassinate and almost did in Jordan, uh, I think in 1987, um, and another seven or eight people. Um, and, and that wouldn't be probably uh, extraordinary news. Um, because Israel r- routinely tries to assassinate Hamas leaders. However, the fact that they have also added their family members as targets of murder and ass- or an ass- assassination is um, not just news, but it ratchets up the level of genocide and, I would say, um, psychosis, even in the leadership of Israel. Um, because Israel is already engaged in war crimes and genocide, um, but um, now we're going to a whole new level, um, a really an atrocious really a place to to be. So one thing I want to point out, uh, two caveats really here. One, I mean, either this is a real directive, and the uh, and the and uh, the Shin Bet and the IDF are going to go forward, are going to try to find all these people, are going to try to assassinate them and succeed wherever they do. Or it's possible that this is a psychological warfare um, in which it may be a bluff. It may be Israel telling Hamas, we can do this, and this is what we will do if you do certain things. Um, And uh, so it may be a game of chicken. And uh, we have the Iranians uh, doing something similar. They have threatened to intervene in uh, any war that happens if Israel uh, launches a ground invasion. Um, Are the Iranians uh, serious about doing this? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. They want to leave Israel in suspense about what, if anything, they will do. Um, So this could also be a... um, a, a, a sort of complicated game of, of psychological warfare and disinformation, or it could be the real thing. Um, I, I want to add that um, Israel does bluff a lot and does lie about a lot of things that it's going to do or has done. Um, and so this could be something like that. But I would err on the side of uh, vigilance and danger here that Israel and its uh, security apparatus will go ahead and try to do these things. And the, 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 the next step here is what is the world going to do? Um, and how is this story even going to be covered? I mean, as, as you said, you're the first media outlet anywhere, including in Israel, that has been able to report this. Um, there was one story in Israel that did confirm this story partially, but Israel is under military censorship, and an issue like this, a directive like this from the government, is not something that Israel right now wants the world to know. Although, um, going back to my source, um, the, I attribute the source as a security official, security uh, source. Um, the, the grounds of uh, the leak to me are that I can't go any farther, either in print or privately. Um, and this is something that journalists do all the time. Um, a lot of people question my sourcing. Um, I mean, but, it's uh, no different than what um, uh, Woodward and Bernstein had to do with Deep Throat in a lot of ways. You know, you exactly. Always, yeah. And you didn't find out until like 30 or 40 years later who your real Deep Throat was. And then it was only because I think the family revealed it or something like that. But anyway... Um, I, I can't reveal anything more specific about the source, but the bona fides of the source are in all of the other reports and leaks that he has provided, which have um, 99% turned out to be accurate and, and verifiable. So, um, yeah, there's there you have it. Um, and uh, that's that's basically the context for this. If you could, you said there there was reports in Israel uh, that partially confirmed some of this? Was this, do you know the exact publication, I guess? Yes, yes. It's Ynet. 
<clears throat> which is the online publication of Yediot Achronot, they could not um, they could not report that the families of uh, Hamas were targeted as well. That was under military censorship. Um, and, and I haven't actually read the whole article yet, so um, I, I only know that particular piece they couldn't report. So um, there are <clears throat> there, the Israeli media sometimes can partially report a story, but the censor tells them you can't reveal this part of the story. Um, also, sometimes Israeli media can report a story if it's already been reported um, outside of Israel. And so I am a foreign source that sometimes Israeli media can uh, can quote uh, or refer to when they uh, report this the story. But that hasn't happened yet. So get into why this is so extraordinary, because I think a lot of people are hearing, well, they want to assassinate Hamas. And, and I mean, after what people saw on October 7th, a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, definitely do it. You know, assassinate these these horrible killers. Uh, but they're talking about targeting families as well. Can you get into why that should be maybe concerning to people? Well, in general, um, this is a complicated moral issue for people because nobody likes to see civilians killed. Um, nobody likes to see 1,400 Israelis killed as Hamas did. Um, I think, though, it's critical to have context here. Uh, Hamas didn't just like on the spur of the moment decide we we really want to kill Jews or we really want to kill Israelis. That's our whole goal in life is kill, 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 kill as many as we can. That's not the way Hamas works. If you look at the context, Israel before this had murdered over 300 Palestinians only in the West Bank. And it had settlers burning entire Palestinian villages. It had the Israeli armed forces going in every night into West Bank villages and killing one or two or three Palestinians. It had the Israeli police desecrating Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, firing tear gas and, and stun grenades into this third holiest site in Islam. So, and, and Palestinians, Palestine was not getting any coverage, not getting any respect, not getting any um, addressing of their issues. You had also the U.S. trying to negotiate normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And in the process, they were giving Saudi Arabia, which claimed that it supported a two-state solution, was willing to totally give up on that uh, aspect because they wanted what they would be given by the U.S., um, in in, uh, in exchange for recognizing Israel. So the Palestinians felt they were adrift in the world. No friends, no allies. The Saudi ally basically willing to uh, throw them under a bus. I also wanted to ask you, going back to this uh, Israeli security source and uh, the directive they spoke of, uh, can you talk about the biblical verse that was in this oh. directive and... Uh, why you felt the need to point it out. I can't believe I forgot to talk about that. That's one of the more important aspects of this for me as a Jew who has studied the Bible and Talmud and everything when I was in college. Um, so they, the directive used the term Amalek. So those who uh, have any familiarity with the Bible will remember that Israel, there were tribes that existed in it, what was Israel or whatever you want to call Palestine, there were tribes already there when the Israelites came from Egypt, at least according to the the Bible, which there's con there's con conflict among scholars about whether this is historically accurate. But according to this narrative, they came into a land where there were tribes and they killed many of those tribes. They exterminated some of those tribes. Some of them probably intermarried with, with the Israelites. Um, and there were military conflict and rivalry with the tribes that they couldn't uh, conquer. So one of the tribes that they did exterminate was called Amalek. And in the Bible, it says that the king of the Israel, uh, Israelites, Saul, was commanded by a prophet, Samuel, who was commanded by God to exterminate all of Amalek, every child, every animal, all the livestock, women, the king, everyone. Um, there were reasons for it, which I won't go into, that, that this was um, commanded. 
but uh, Saul didn't do it. And as a result, he was condemned um, and he eventually died in battle. Um, so this is really this this command in the Bible to exterminate Amalek is what the biblical verse that was used in the directive. The directive was titled, you shall eliminate, you shall eradicate all memory, all uh, reference to Amalek. This is what we would call the equivalent of the Holocaust. And this is why it is so important to understand this directive as not just uh, a couple of assassinations. It is a ideological commitment to genocide um, and, and genocide in the most basic way of exterminating uh, the leaders of an entire people and also going to their family and their relatives. Yeah, you know, the way you put it is it's it's sort of a command saying exterminate the entire tribe of Amalek, not even sparing children or the tribe's livestock. So it's it's going beyond just Hamas leadership. And I, I think that needs to be emphasized. Yeah, I mean, in ancient cultures, when there was a fight and one uh, like Rome conquered uh, a province, what they would do is they would destroy every building, every person, and they would even dig the ground up so there couldn't be any uh, further resettlement. Um, and so that's what uh, the, uh, Israel wants to do in, in Gaza, destroy every building, kill every person uh, possible, and uh, make it a wasteland so it can never be an enemy in the future to Israel. In regards to what all of this means geostrategically, could we see this break out into a, a wider war? And I want to quote something here. Uh, I just saw an article in the Financial Times. And uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, it's by Neri Zilber in Tel Aviv and Felicia Schwartz in Washington, D.C. It's from uh, 10-24-2023. The article is titled, Fears Grow That Israel Has, quote-unquote, No Plan agreed for post-war Gaza. And I believe one of the exact quotes was, well, if people can just read the article. I, I don't, uh, oh, here it is. The Americans went crazy when they realized there was no plan. Uh, so it, it seems like Israel is really working in the dark in some ways based on that reporting. What's your take? Well, <clears throat> Israel was, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but security-wise, Israel was a, disastrous failure of security that it didn't know what Hamas was planning and that Hamas was able to rampage through southern Israel for almost a week. Um, it took them that long to uh, to um, eradicate the uh, Hamas fighters. And by the way, this also has not been reported uh, outside of Israel, but um, the, the military, the soldiers that came to try to fight the Hamas actually their commanders ordered them to fire into homes and into groups that contained Israeli hostages. So they were willing to kill Israeli hostages in order to kill Hamas. This is something that Israel has never done, um, but it was so desperate and the situation was so chaotic because Hamas basically had destroyed the communications of the IDF. So no one in the IDF knew what was happening and where it was happening. So this was something also that happened. Um, but let's talk about geostrategic uh, implications here. Iran is a major uh, hostile enemy of Israel, and Iran has militia throughout the Middle East, including Hezbollah in Lebanon, including militia in Iraq and Syria, and including Houthis, the Houthis in Yemen. They all have been activated by Iran and are already engaged in attacks on Israeli and U.S. assets. We have uh, drone attacks on U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq, in which 24 U.S. soldiers were injured. We have uh, Hezbollah mounting uh, sort of small-scale attacks on Israeli military positions in uh, northern Israel. And we have Iran threatening to intervene itself directly in uh, in confronting Israel if it launches a ground invasion. We have U.S. aircraft carrier strike groups in the Mediterranean. We have a second strike group in the Persian Gulf. We have Houthi rebels firing 
drones and uh, ballistic missiles towards Israel, which were intercepted by a U.S. naval vessel. I mean, and we have Chinese, uh, the China sending six warships to the Persian Gulf. This is a recipe if you want to look at what happened in World War One, where one one incident, one assassination started a whole concatenation of events that led us into World War One. This is this is very possible for this to happen if one false move happens. If Israel invades Gaza, that could be the match that lights this. Yeah. The, by the way, the the Financial Times article I was referring to, and and we'll get back into the regional issues, but um, I, I guess it's arguing that there's a concern that Israel doesn't have an exit strategy or any post-war goals, um, and that there's concern over this uh, if they do a land invasion, because you know there, there's no strategy going forward. Uh, do you think that's a legitimate concern, or do you think uh, people are getting too caught up in that kind of reporting? Well, I want to point your uh, your viewers and listeners to the New York Times, actually. Ronan Bergman is another Israeli reporter who writes for the New York Times, and he has uh, very good internal sources in uh, the Israeli political um, apparatus and also extremely close relationships with Mossad. And he's been writing uh, every couple of days an article. And I think possibly the Financial Times article is either getting the same information as he is or maybe reading his articles because he reports that there is dissension in Israel, dissension between the military and the political echelon. Echelons, the military wants to invade Gaza and Netanyahu is holding them off. Um, also Biden has weighed in and told Netanyahu not to invade. There was a report today saying that the U.S. is telling him to delay because the U.S. wants to position its forces in the Middle East in order to help Israel uh, defend against such an attack. So um, there Especially is in case of a uh, uh, an outbreak of regional war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That too. Regional it, war. yeah. it wants to deter Iran and wants to basically tell Hezbollah and Iran that we will punish you. Um, if you uh, do, uh, if you intervene and you attack Israel, but um, there is a huge level of dysfunction in Israel itself. We've had the demonstrations, the anti-judicial coup demonstrations for weeks, almost up to a year every weekend. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis opposed to this government's this extreme right-wing government, and um, that dissension reached into the army with um, reservists and officers saying they wouldn't serve. Uh, under this government, although they now have uh, gone back on that and are, are uh, engaged in whatever will happen in Gaza. But um, that dysfunction means that no no entity really has control over what will happen. The army, this is what you were talking about, isn't sure what to do other than go in and decimate Hamas. Are they going to um, totally destroy Hamas and liquidate and assassinate or murder every member of Hamas like the Sri Lankans did against the Tamil Tigers? Um, can, will the world let them get away with this? And what happens even if they do that to Gaza afterwards? There've been talk about having a, a, a government that would be appointed by outside parties that would run Gaza um, and uh, will the Israeli army go in and reoccupy uh, Gaza as it did uh, many years ago? And then it puts the onus on Israel to to manage and administer Gaza if they do that. So it's a just a total disastrous mess. And we even had Joe Biden, the president of the United States, sitting in a, an Israeli cabinet meeting and telling them that if you do this ground invasion, you will be making the same mistakes the U.S. made. It wanted revenge after 9-11. It invaded Afghanistan and toppled the government there. It invaded Iraq, toppled Saddam. And look at the mess that we made for ourselves as a result of that. So Biden was telling him, think about the um, think about the, the pushback uh, uh, that will happen, the backlash that could happen from you um, invading Gaza and then having to take the consequences. If we could go a little bit longer, uh, you said one false move uh, could lead to very big consequences. Can you 
give some scenarios where things could spiral even further out of control. Uh, I know that's speculative, but but to give an idea of where this could go. Well, um, <clears throat> there are certain things we know uh, would happen if we get into that scenario. Um, uh, Hezbollah has the most advanced rockets that Iran produces because Iran is supplying them with training and with the parts of the rockets and also the engineering of rockets. And they have over 100,000 rockets in their um, in their arsenal. And the way in which Hamas's rockets, when they attacked on October 7th, defeated Israeli defenses is that they launched a thousand rockets almost all at the same time. And their Iron Dome def- missile defense cannot track that many rockets. There aren't enough Iron Dome, uh, you know, uh, uh, there aren't enough Iron Dome uh, weapons or whatever you want to call them, anti-missile weapons, to cover that amount. And Hezbollah is infinitely more powerful militarily than Hamas is. In fact, the, uh, the defense minister told Secretary of State Blinken that he wanted to attack Lebanon, not so much Gaza, but he wanted to go for the most powerful enemy Israel has, and he wanted Gaza to be a feint. Um, well, for they lost. What, Israel lost its last round with Hezbollah, essentially. 2006, Hezbollah was a much more powerful adversary than, than Israel expected, and Israel lost a lot of soldiers um, based on uh, a strategy that Hezbollah had developed that um, really counteracted whatever um, strength that Israeli military had. So Hezbollah is very powerful. <clears throat> they could launch missiles. They could also send their fighters into northern Israel. These fighters have had a lot of military experience in Syria, fighting on behalf of the, uh, the Assad regime. So they would be no small uh, enemy to have to deal with. Then you're talking about Iran. Iran has ballistic missiles that could reach Israel as well. They don't have a, a nuclear weapons, so there's no fear of that happening. Although Israel could be conceivably, theoretically, use a nuclear weapon. Um, and and uh, Moshe Dayan in 1973 wanted to persuade uh, Golda Meir to do that, but luckily uh, they didn't. Um, but there is danger that we could go ratchet up all the way to that kind of level. It's unlikely uh, to have a nuclear confrontation, but Iran can launch missiles at Israel. Um, Iran has activated the uh, three, at least three or four militias that I talked about. They can inflict damage on the U.S. Um, and we can talk about uh, p- potential terror attacks on U.S. assets, on Israel. Um, there have already been Israelis killed in Egypt uh, in retaliation for this. And I think one there was one stabbing uh, in which someone died in Europe, I believe. So um, that is just the beginning. And... If we want to talk about that, we're going to have blowback here in the United States against Muslims. We had an attack in Chicago where a, a six-year-old boy, a Palestinian-American boy, was murdered. Um, this could rapidly become even more than a regional conflict, which would be bad enough. We could see blowback all over the world from something like this. I wanted to mention real quick, uh, the Houthis, uh, how do they figure into things well, Houthis are also, like Hezbollah, very powerful, and their adversary has been UAE, one of the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia. In fact, one of those missiles I mentioned that was uh, fired by the Houthis and uh, towards um, Iran, towards Israel, I'm sorry, um, was taken down by Saudi anti-missile um, defenses. So you have the Saudis and the U.S., um, defending Israel, essentially. And the Houthis have basically defeated the Saudi invasion of Yemen. The Saudis tried to impose their own um, ruler on uh, Yemen, and the Houthis, who are Shiite, like uh, Iran is, um, uh, resisted this and basically took over a large chunk of the country. Um, and they now have missiles that they've used against Saudi Arabia. They took out much of Saudi Arabia's oil production uh, a couple of years ago with drone attacks. So the Houthis, combined with Iran and combined with this, the uh, the Iranian militias in Iraq, can do devastating damage. They could also damage Saudi Arabia um, as well. So that's how this can uh, get you. We can game this out um, as a as a definitely a possible um, uh, scenario. 
Also, should we talk a little bit about China in regards to this? I guess they directed six of their warships to the Gulf right now, right? They did. And we have this is in the uh, context of this U.S.-China rivalry, uh, which now if you have ships in the Gulf and you have U.S. and Chinese ships in the Gulf, that transfers this rivalry, which was restricted to Asia until now, um, uh, and makes it a global rivalry. And um, we have substituted in the Cold War, our arrival was uh, Soviet Union, and now um, the, Russia is really a lesser power, and uh, China has arisen as a global superpower. And it's uh, expanding its military so that it has global reach. And uh, Xi Jinping, I can't get his name right, but the president of China um, is has very, very strong ambitions for China to make its mark on the world stage. And it is, um, hopefully their Navy in the Gulf is not going to get in any confrontations with the US. But I think China is sort of laying down a marker and saying, you're not going to be the only one involved in this. We're going to be at the table uh, for whatever happens, and we're going to be your equals. In other words, this brings the U.S.-China rivalry into, as you put it in your article, the Middle East theater. Uh, and I noticed you mentioned at the end of this uh, breaking news article you wrote uh, that it, this sort of brings to mind the Cold War, uh, which included proxy wars in various places. Uh, can you expound on that a bit? Well, in in Vietnam, which was one of our most traumatic uh, interventions in Southeast Asia, um, we had the Vietnamese basically supplied militarily by Russia. I, mean, I don't know if China was involved, but Russia for sure uh, played a role in uh, supporting Vietnam because uh, North Vietnam because they had this global rivalry with us and they wanted to cause uh, damage to us to our capabilities, our military capabilities, to our um, domination of um, sort of the global stage as a superpower. And now China is playing that role. And China and the U.S. are um, getting into confrontations, naval confrontations in the South China Sea. Um, we have our allies, South Korea and Japan involved, uh, also confronting the Chinese. And um, so you have a, a possible tinderbox in in, in Asia, and let's not forget North Korea, which is an ally of China, and it, it has nuclear weapons. Um, so we have that global theater in which there there's high tension and high possibility of conflict. And, and also, let's include Taiwan there as a possible conflict between uh, China, which claims Taiwan, and the Taiwanese, who ha themselves have a strong military. So China could be exporting uh, this to uh, the Middle East and basically saying, um, we are extending our power and our reach beyond Asia, and we want the U.S. to know that we will not let you become the kind of uh, dominant mono uh, power in, in the world. What are your biggest concerns right now? What do you see as the biggest uh, risks? Uh, I mean, even, I, I don't know if we can say there's existential risks right now, but uh, there seems to be some pretty big risks and uh, stakes. Well, the biggest stake is a ground invasion of Gaza. Um, they've already murdered or, or killed 7,000 people. By the way, um, 18 to 2,000, 1,800 to 2,000 of them were children who were murdered. Um, there are still 700 children in the rubble who are missing. Um, so that's the biggest, um, biggest, um, terrible option that could happen here. And it could happen any day now. Israel has threatened to invade over the last two weeks. So they could invade tomorrow. They could be invading in an hour for all I know. And once that happens, all bets are off. And the scenario that we were talking about could happen. Um, and I want to also bring in the possibility of resisting this outcome. And that is, um, we had 150,000 people massing in solidarity with Palestine and with Gaza in, in London. Here in Seattle, we had 2,500 people last weekend, and we're going to have rallies uh, supporting uh, Gaza every weekend. Um, in, in D.C., uh, we have the uh, Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now protests. And there were 10,000 people at that protest. 
young American Jews who said they want a ceasefire now and they want humanitarian goods to flow freely into Gaza and not be under the control of Israel, which has prevented almost all of them from getting through. So, and they, and hundreds of them went into the capital and took over the rotund of the capital and they were singing uh, the, the, uh, the, the biblical verse about nation shall not lift up sword against nation, singing that all together in unison. There have been sit-ins, if not now, sit-ins in the offices of Chuck Schumer um, and in um, the offices of two other, oh, and they were sitting in in Bernie Sanders' office. And Bernie has made a positive statement about this, but he's not yet called for a ceasefire. And 300 of his former staff, his alumni, uh, they call themselves, have, uh, have said to him, you need to call for an immediate ceasefire. You need to do what 18 progressive Democrats have done in the House, call for an immediate ceasefire. What do you think a wider regional war would mean? And I mean, I, I don't want to be catastrophic because, you know, I don't think that helps anything. But I, I see some people saying it's just the start of like World War Three. You know, yeah. I mean, how far could this go? Well, today <clears throat> I read a tweet uh, by a radical right wing um theocratic uh, fundamentalist group that wants to destroy Al-Aqsa and replace it with a rebuilt temple. So there have been two previous temples uh, on what Israel calls the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They want to destroy Al-Aqsa and then replace it with a third uh, temple. So if that happens, I mean, this is just a radical extremist group. But the problem with Israel is that Kahana, Mayor Kahana, and his ideology was considered the lunatic fringe in 1988 when he uh, went to Israel. Um, and now the Kahana's thinking dominates all of Israeli politics and all of Israeli society. So it is a, mis it is a mistake to say that people, that crazy people who want to destroy Al-Aqsa will never happen and they're lunatics. Um, and, and if it happens, let's game that out. You've destroyed the third holiest site in Islam. What do they think will happen? What will Arabs and Muslims around the world do about that? They will not sit back and they will not say it's just the Palestinians. We don't owe them anything like they are basically doing right now. They will be up in arms and in a furor. And that's just one example of what could happen. It could be much worse and in other areas and theaters and regions of the world, but this is just one aspect. I want you to clarify because I have had guests on from Israel. So when you say that, um, you know, Kahanism dominates uh, Israeli political thought now, I mean, I know there's going to be people that will say, well, what about, um, you know, an activist like Michael Sfard? Or what about, uh, you know, Ofer Kassif, uh, who is now suspended from the Knesset. So maybe you can elaborate on on the specifics of what you mean by uh, Kahanism's hold on Israel. Well, there has for decades been an Israeli left. Uh, originally, um, the Labor Party was a social democratic socialist kind of party, and Israel was a, a social welfare state like um, Scandinavian countries. And uh, gradually over time, in 1977, the Likud took over. And gradually over time, Israeli politics has, has traveled farther and farther to the right until right now, it's so far right, it's going to fall off the face of the earth. Um, and um, Kahanism really dominates the elections. It dominates the Knesset. Um, it dominates the judiciary. There are far right wing uh, justices on the Supreme Court. And um, yes, there are pockets of the left still existing, and there are human rights advocates like Svard and like many others. Um, there are a few people in the Knesset who are left-wing. They're mostly Israeli-Palestinians, um, but they are suppressed and they are criminalized by the, uh, by the most powerful majority uh, political entity in Israel. Um, like you said, Kasif was suspended. The Israeli-Palestinian MKs 
are often suspended. They're often when there's an election, the Knesset votes to bar them from even running from the Knesset. And then the Supreme Court has to step in and say no. But if the government anti-judicial coup comes into effect, the Supreme Court will no longer be able to do those minimal things it does to restrain this fascist impulse and to protect what little democracy there is in Israel. I also wanted to ask you, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but uh, Itamar Ben-Giver, from my understanding, is out when it comes to the emergency unity government. And I'm sure there's people that think, well, yeah, that's great. The problem is he's buying up arms and giving them to these juvenile delinquent youths that are now attacking the West Bank. How much is that going to cause potential issues? I mean, beyond just the horrible, uh, just death of innocence in the West Bank. Well, the settlers, the hilltop youth you're referring to as the delinquents, and they're actually murderous thugs um, and and. Uh, I, 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 maybe I, I spoke. Uh, no, no, no. Ju- juvenile delinquents is a good start. <laughs> but these are uh, killers. These are killer thugs, terrorists um, who murder with impunity. Um, and they, as Israel has shifted all of its attention to Gaza, they've realized they can do things they never were felt they were able to do more extreme things, more violent things. So as a result, a dozen Palestinian villages have been forced to completely leave. They've been expelled from their villages because of the violence against them. In one village, the settlers killed four residents of the village. The rest of the village said, we got to leave because we're, well, we're all going to be killed. So that's happened in 12 villages and up to a thousand Palestinians have been ethnically cleansed from villages they've lived in for generations. And this is just the beginning because these are small villages. They're gonna go to larger and larger ones. Their goal is to ethnically cleanse every Palestinian in Gaza, which is something you referred to when we were talking earlier, and also in the West Bank. Their plan is to send all of the 2.5 million West Bank Palestinians to Jordan, which is already 50% Palestinian, and to send the one and a half to two million Gazans to Egypt. Um, And there was even a think tank which came up with a plan to spend five to eight billion dollars and build new cities and take what they claim are six million, I think they say six million housing units in Egypt that are either under construction or already built, which are empty, and they plan on dumping all of these Gaza Palestinians into the middle of the Sinai Desert or the Cairo suburbs. So that's what the goal of these uh, crazy lunatics who basically are the state. I'm not talking about lunatics like they're powerless or like they're way out on the deep end. They are in control of all the levers of power in Israel. So let's make no mistake about it. That's what I meant about Kahanism dominating the military, dominating the political sphere, and dominating almost every aspect of Israeli life. And it's it's basically Ju- Judeo-fundamentalism. It's the Jewish Taliban, because they're using religion as a weapon um, in, in obtaining political power. And I think it's important to note, I've, I've talked a lot about Ben-Giver on this show, but it's not just a figure of Ben-Giver. And his party is not the only party. There's parties like Noam. And one of the ones that I think is really important to talk about is... Uh, the religious Zionist party. And Smotrich is still the finance minister. So, I mean, I think people really need to keep that in mind. Well, they need to keep in mind that these two people you just mentioned actually are Jewish terrorists. Um, uh, Smotrich uh, in 2006 was arrested by the Shin Bet. Um, He had uh, explosive devices that there was a plan by a terror cell, which he was a member of, to explode a bomb on uh, the Ayalon Highway, which is the main road uh, in Tel Aviv. So, and he was arrested for three weeks uh, by the Shin Bet, and, and they knew that he wanted to engage in a terror attack because of the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Um, and Ben Gavir is basically uh, the leader of a terrorist cell. He runs these hilltop youth and these young teenagers who are impressionable, often come from troubled homes, he befriends them, he takes them in, and he engineers terror attacks that they engage in routinely. So that's just a, the, didn't didn't Ben Giver used to have a photo of Baruch Goodstein in his offices? 
there a reporter once went to his home and did an interview with him and there prominently behind his head, not just Baruch Goldstein, but it had a picture of Al-Aqsa with the, uh, the, the minaret of the mosque toppled over. In other words, it, it was a, um, the implication was that um, he and his movement wanted to destroy Al-Aqsa. Um, so that's where these people want to go. And, and for people that don't know, Goldstein, this was a man who in 1994 killed 29, injured 125 at a mosque, you know, and he was influenced uh, a supporter of the Kak Party, which uh, Kahanist again, you know. So yeah. I, I think people should keep all this in mind. Uh, where do you see Turkey, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar when it comes to all of this? Well, Qatar is very interesting because they are they have been instrumental in negotiating for the release of the hostages uh, that Hamas holds, the Israeli and foreign nationals that they hold. And uh, we should mention that Hamas has released four hostages, two American and two elderly Israelis. And Qatar was instrumental in that. Qatar has also uh, financed uh, humanitarian relief in Gaza, um, controlled by Hamas. And, uh, and Qatar also has played a moderate, moderating role in relation to the Gulf states and Iran, which has been a long-time rivalry. Um, and there have been violent acts on both sides against each other. And Qatar has been a mediator in that sense. So they play a very important role in trying to keep the lid on the worst aspects of uh, violence, potential violence in the Middle East. Um, in terms of Turkey, um, it also wants its influence in the Middle East. Um, but also, I think that there is a certain level of pragmatism, even though they are pretty um, radical Islamist in, in their political orientation domestically. I think in terms of foreign policy, um, they want to be careful. They have uh, their troops are in Syria uh, because they're fighting the Kurds in Syria um, who want their own uh, autonomy inside of Turkey. So I don't know what role Turkey might play. Um, there's another question about Syria, because now Assad has taken back most of his territory, and uh, he normally doesn't want to get into a confrontation with Israel. But if Hezbollah does, and Hezbollah was allied with Assad, Syria might become involved in this as well. I mentioned Saudi Arabia as, as well. Do you think oh. this is going to uh, is this going to kill the normalization efforts? Well, it's definitely put it on ice. Um, the normalization was a cornerstone of Biden's Middle East policy. He had really no other Middle East policy. He wasn't really to pressure Israel about anything. So normalization became his sort of big issue. Um, and they desperately wanted Saudi Arabia to normalize with Israel. And they came fairly close before October 7. And that also might have been one reason why Hamas uh, invaded, because they realized that if they lose Saudi Arabia, they have no uh, Arabs, uh, no allies in the Arab world who are willing to uh, provide any support to them, financial or otherwise. So uh, the Saudis have an alliance with the United States, um, and they have a lot of interaction between Israel and Saudi Arabia uh, because they've both been allies against Iran. Um, they've traded intelligence. They've even the Saudis have even funded the Israeli um, attacks on Iranian nuclear infrastructure. So um, it's a very close relationship. And after this war is over, hopefully it will end soon. Um, probably those efforts and normalization will resume. And I just want to say that normalization is a, is a chimera or chimera. It will not solve any problems. Um, it will not uh, do, do anything except help the elites and and create business and economic opportunities. I mean, it, I mean, the way I see it is the normalization. A lot of this is about putting the Palestinians under the bus, right? Israel has um, the normalization with the four or five countries it is already normalized with. Basically, um, the uh, it eliminates the Palestinian question for Israel. Because these are countries that used to be allied with Palestinians. So now Israel has taken all of these states out of the picture and Palestinians are left with nothing. And that again goes back to what I was saying, that Palestinians and Hamas see the normalization 
as destroying any um, any chance of achieving any of their own national goals. Two more things I promise to let you go after this. Uh, first, I, I know we've talked about the influence of the far right. You don't see any glimmers of hope in the reports coming out now that, you know, I think it's like some 80% are blaming Netanyahu for not protecting them with the October 7th attack. I mean, what, how would you respond to people that would bring that up um, in contra to your point about the hold of the far right on Israel? Well, there's two things to keep in mind about Israeli opinion on these subjects. They hate Netanyahu. So um, 80% of Israel hates Netanyahu. And those are the people that rallied against him uh, at those protests I mentioned. Um, but 65% of Israelis favor a ground invasion. So I- Israelis are schizophrenic. Um, some of them are liberal enough to say, we do need to give the Palestinians some kind of power over their, uh, over their fate, and we do need to give them some kind of autonomy or maybe a state. But then again, they also say that um, we're, we're 40% of Israelis support ethnic cleansing. They support what they call transfer, which basically means forcing the population of, uh, of, of the West Bank out of, out of the West Bank. So um, their views are all over the map uh, on this. And I think what might happen after this war is over, that Israeli opinion about the war may change because it changed in 2006. You have this burst of patriotism, this burst of defending the homeland, that happens like ad- adrenaline when you're in the middle of a, a fight and that dissipates. And then you sit back and you say, oh, my God, what the blank happened here? You know, I just had something pop up that I, I think we should address. Um, I have listeners that come from various different uh, political persuasions. Most are at least uh, liberal center left. And I have a lot of Jewish American listeners that range from liberal Zionists to non-Zionists to anti-Zionists. So I think right now, a lot of liberal Zionists I know um, who really hate Netanyahu, in in my experience, uh, will say, you know, I hate the occupation. I've met liberal Zionists who I think are are very annoyed with what has happened and angry about what has happened in the West Bank. They think it's a bad uh, thing that's happening there. Um, And even the conditions of Gaza, they'll speak out against. But I also see a lot of those same liberal Zionists saying, you know, payment needs to be made over what happened on the 7th. And I think there's just a lot of conflicting emotions at work for the people I've talked to that identify as liberal Zionists, because I I do think there is a difference between liberal Zionists and maybe um, a hardcore supporter of the Likud party. What is it that you would want to say? And and I know you're an anti-Zionist. What would you want to say to your Jewish brethren that are maybe liberal Zionists. What, what do you want? How would you communicate to them at this time? Well, I've actually written about that in my blog <clears throat> um, because I've been thinking about it. Um, I want to give you a couple of examples. Um, there were two articles that came out with the same title, and the title was Why I Quit DSA. So DSA has made a very strong statement calling for a ceasefire immediate ceasefire and calling for humanitarian aid, which is basically the agenda of the left in the world and in the United States, um, a consensus of progressives. And so one uh, American Jew who wrote in The Nation, why I quit the DSA, and um, a member of Congress who was very heavily funded by uh, Apex um you know, political action committees, right-wing pro-Israel political action committees, but who claimed that he was a progressive and he claimed he was a member of the DSA. They both wrote the same title to their article, which makes you wonder, you know, why why that happened. But anyway, so there is this um, strand of thinking, uh, liberal thinking, which is Hamas has gone a step too far. We can no longer justify our support for Palestinians, or we are going to temper our support for Palestinians because we now realize how evil Hamas is. And you remember, Benny, uh, uh, the defense minister called uh, Palestinians human animals or Hamas human animals. So that has influenced liberal Zionists, and, and they've attenuated 
their support for Palestine. And the problem with that is if you are progressive and you do not understand the context in which Hamas did what it did, then you're losing the progressive values that you claim to have. Um, and this happened to the Israeli left, which we talked about earlier. Um, after the first intifada, the left said, oh, my God, we didn't realize the Palestinians really wanted to kill us. Um, so we have to abandon all of our, our principles. And, um, and that's when the left died in Israel. And that's why I hope that um, those people, those liberal Zionists who uh, may be saying things like that, um, um, realize, I don't think they will realize it, and maybe they'll eventually uh, drift back into a sort of pro, more pro-Israel uh, you know, point of view. But we on the left have to stay true to our moral values and realize that what Israel is doing in Gaza is immoral, is a crime against humanity. And regardless of what happened before, regardless of how horrible it might be to kill Israeli civilians, if we lose sight of the morality or immorality of what's going on, and also the hopelessness that Israel is engendering because it doesn't, it refuses to compromise at all with the Palestinians. That's where our eyes have to be. I, I, I liken it to that phrase, eyes on the prize. You have to keep your eyes on what the prize is here. And if you, if you get um, uh, sort of sidetracked into these other issues that Israel wants you to be sidetracked by, by the way, which is why they put out all this anti-Hamas propaganda with videos showing murders and whatever. Um, you cannot be lose track of, of of those root values that we need to have to really analyze and understand what's going on. Richard, is there anything else you want to say in closing, anything we didn't cover uh, that you briefly want to touch upon here at the end? Well, I have to say that I'm discouraged um, and disconsolate. Um, because I'm Jewish and because I've lived in Israel and studied in Israel. Um, and so it gives me no happiness or pleasure to say the kinds of things I'm saying about Israel, but I think they have to be said. I mean, we have to be, we, we may not be able to change the world or, or bring about uh, peace or, or, or even having a major impact on any of those things, but I think all of us need to be bear witness all of us need to um, describe the reality for what it is and not be confused by um, propaganda uh, or confused by alternating confusing voices and confusing narratives about what's going on. So um, we have to start try to stay as positive as we can and keep our eyes on where things need to go. Um, in the Middle East in order for us to avoid war, avoid regional conflict, and avoid genocide. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Um, my blog is at richardsilverstein.com and is called Tikkun Olam. And I publish also at three outlets, Jacobin Magazine, Middle East Eye, and The New Arab. And I'm in the middle of a Facebook fundraiser to support my work and my journalism. So if people are on Facebook, they can go to my um, my page and I'll have a link to that as well. And so I want to thank you for having me on, as you have a few times, and thank your viewers and your listeners um, for listening to my perspective. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found informative my conversation with Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Ulam blog about the Israeli national security state. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jerlax Views to Parallax Jerlax Views with Jerlax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.